Today from the Global Lane, rare earth metals controlled by China, crucial elements for clean energy and U.S. defense. Tensions over Taiwan may place the supply in jeopardy. There is certainly danger uh, or risk that China might uh, do that, especially if there is sanctions against China. Calls to cancel the 4th of July. Is it an unpatriotic consequence of critical race theory instruction? This is an intentional effort by Marxists to not just attack the founding fathers, but to discredit the value systems that they held. Woke culture and remembering the sacrifice of the Americans who signed the Declaration of Independence. We have to be inspired by these 56 men. No one's going to ride over the horizon to rescue us, Gary. At a certain point, we have to save ourselves, too. And it's all right here on The Global Lane. As people around the world focus on putting gas in their tanks and food on their tables, China is on the move, slowly, methodically, moving to dominate world markets. Ignoring international sanctions, the Chinese Communist Party imported a record amount of Russian crude oil in May, nearly 2 million barrels a day. Our next guest says, of greater concern to the future of the U.S. and Western security may be the CCP's dominance of rare earth metals. Luisa Moreno is president of Defense Metals Corporation, one of the largest mineral exploration companies in the world. Dr. Moreno, good to have you with us. So as the world moves forward to embrace alternative forms of energy, I'm assuming there's a greater demand for, say, lithium right now, which is used in making batteries for electric vehicles. Most people are probably unaware that China dominates the global lithium supply. So tell us more about that and why we should be concerned. Well, China is the largest producer of about 20 plus uh, metals, elements, materials that are critical for the green transition. And that includes lithium. Uh, they don't necessarily mine. They're not the largest miners of lithium, but they are the ones that processes the lithium to the battery grade that is required uh, for, for electric vehicles. They also not the largest producer of, for instance, cobalt that comes from the DRC in, in Africa, but they uh, account for the largest portion of processing as well. And, and then the other example is, of course, uh, rare earth elements uh, that Defense Metals, uh, the company that I am part of, uh, is, is a focus on. So rare earths don't go into batteries, but they go. Uh, into permanent magnet motors, the electric motors for the electric vehicles. Those are the, the most efficient and strongest magnets uh, known, and, and they are critical for, for electric vehicles as well. And China produces about 60% of rare, rare earth elements, but processes, refines about 85%, including um, the 40,000 tons that comes from mountain pass in the United States that is mined in the United States and is exported to China, but is refined. Well, let's talk about the implications of this. Let's just say hypothetical scenario here. Uh, they invade ta Taiwan, the U.S. resists, and then they say, okay, we're going to stop processing all this stuff and you won't get it. Well, it wouldn't be something new. Uh, there were um, suggestions in the past that back in 2010, uh, due to disputes, uh, territorial disputes between China and Japan, that China uh, threatened um, to halt exports of rare earths to, to Japan. 
that is well known, is documented. Um, and, and then, you know, fortunately things got, got resolved. So can we end up in a similar situation? I, I surely hope not, uh, because, you know, China does control 85% uh, of the refining um, and much higher percentages for some of the more critical elements uh, that go into the electric vehicles, as well as uh, wind turbines and, um, and some defense applications as well. So that would be uh, of great concern if we go into a situation uh, of conflict, or if we see a situation of conflict between the US uh, and China, over Taiwan, for instance, and there is certainly um, danger uh, or risk that China might uh, do that, especially if there is sanctions against China. Let's look at let's look at some specifics here. What's the potential threat to U.S. national security and Western defenses then? Oh, it's it's huge. It's it's very large. Uh, now, granted, um, you know the the defense industry uh, has a very large budget. Uh, and they probably will be trying to recover these elements at very extremely high costs um, to, to get them. So it is, it's not uh, impossible to, to get them, uh, but it would be at, at extremely ridiculous cost. Um, you know, so because again, China, some of these elements, like I said, China uh, controls 100% of the production. And so that is, that is a ridiculously high risk. Of course, I think U.S., uh, keep some, uh, they stockpile some of these critical materials, but beyond that uh, period uh, where they can, uh, you know, utilize the stockpiles, there will be really significant costs of development uh, of that supply chain in order to secure that for defense applications. And I, I've got to ask you about uranium. It's a very important component for nuclear weapons systems, and you're well-versed in the Uranium One decision when the Obama administration signed off on the sale of that Canadian mining company to Russia. Today, despite the war in Ukraine, nearly half of U.S. uranium supply is purchased from Russia, its partners in Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan. How concerned should we be about that, uranium? Yes, uranium is another important element uh, for, for the energy transition that, that is important, CO2. So um, it is important, effectively, for... Uh, for the West, uh, for the rest of the world, to be looking at diversifying, you know, where we get these materials, um, you know, and uranium is, is one of them for sure. Okay, Dr. Luisa Moreno, President of Defense Metals Corporation. Thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. We appreciate it. Here on the home front, what does July 4th, America's Independence Day, mean to you? Is it just another holiday for gathering with family and friends? Maybe to enjoy a parade or watch fireworks? How about sacrifice? Do you teach your children about those who died fighting the British so we could have a free and independent country? And American soldiers weren't the only ones who paid a price for freedom. Those who actually signed our Declaration of Independence sacrificed, and I quote that document, their lives, fortunes, and sacred honor. Here to explain is Douglas McKinnon. He's author of the new book, The 56. Douglas, it's a pleasure to talk with you about your new book. What do we do uh, to understand about these 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence? What do we need to know? Yeah, Gary, thanks so much for having me on. So it's interesting with regard to the book, The 56, I had no intentions of writing it as of just last July 3rd. 
And then on July 4th of last year, I took a little bit of a tour through some of the more liberal networks out there, and I saw guest after guest after guest talking about canceling the 4th of July, canceling our founding fathers, canceling the American flag. And so basically, I just picked up my phone that day, called my publisher, and this book was created. Because what I believe and what I talk about in the book, Gary, if, if our history is bad, let us condemn it and learn from it. If our history is good, let us praise it and build upon it. But let us never, ever cancel our shared American history, something that is not taught in our schools anymore. And many people are, of course, familiar with Thomas Jefferson, John Hancock, Benjamin Franklin, John Adams. How about some of those we didn't actually learn about in school? Who else stands out in your book? Yeah, one of the greatest things about doing a book like this, Gary, as you know, is actually learning a little bit more about the subject. And so for me, the most important person, and I really frame him that way in the book, was Richard Henry Lee of Virginia, you know, not too far where you guys are from in terms of doing the show, because actually it was Richard Henry Lee who was going to be the chairman of the Committee of Five to draft the Declaration of Independence, and it was going to be Richard Henry Lee who was going to get picked to actually draft it. But then what happened was, Gary, on June 10th of 1776, his wife took deathly ill, and he told Jefferson and others at the Continental Congress, don't wait on me. I've got to get home and take care of my family. And so Thomas Jefferson actually stepped into the breach and became the person we know. But in many ways, it was Richard Henry Lee who laid the foundation for our liberty. What price, if any, did these signers pay, Douglas, for putting their signatures on a document that was considered to be treasonous by the British crown? That's exactly right, Gary, because when these 56 men signed the Declaration of Independence, they were literally signing their own death warrants, and each man knew that. And guess what? So many of them paid a severe price. A number of them were arrested. A number of them had their homes burned to the ground, their wives arrested, their wives in prison, their wives sexually abused, their sons shot. And again, for some people on the far left to want to cancel these courageous heroes, the men that actually created the greatest nation known to the face of the earth, it, it all stems from the fact that some people are looking at 1776 through a very clouded and biased 2022 prism, and they can't do it that way. You know, I have a British friend of mine who has said, uh, look, there, there was no tyranny that they were fighting against. The crown wasn't uh, tyrannical. What do you say? Well, I say what exactly what Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin and John Adams said, that the fact the crown was stepping on the throats of the colonists and squeezing all the air out of them. And one of the points I make in the book, too, is I, I try to also say, look, the tyranny of 1776 was bad, but in many ways, the tyranny of today may be, may be even worse. It's one of these things where we have to take we have to be inspired by these 56 men. No one's going to ride over the horizon to rescue us, Gary. At a certain point, we have to save ourselves, too. And that's why a lot of people say, thank God for the Second Amendment. Finally, what's the takeaway, Douglas, for this Independence Day? What do we as Americans and others who appreciate the United States need to remember about the 56 and the 4th of July? that these men were heroes. They were so courageous. It was their genius, their vision, and their courage and their sacrifice, which did create the United States of America. And again, we should all be out there making sure that they are not canceled, that the 4th of July is not canceled, that the American flag is not smeared. We have to speak up for ourselves. And the 56 left us the blueprint to do exactly that. Well, we're thankful for them, and God bless America. The book is... The 56. Douglas McKinnon, thank you for sharing those insights.
It's been an honor, Gary. Happy Fourth of July. This week, on a 6-3 to three vote, the U.S. Supreme Court upheld the right of a Washington high school coach to take a knee and pray quietly on the field after football games. One school official suggested that Coach Joe Kennedy pray in a janitor's closet. But the high court says coaches have the right to pray publicly, and the school district was wrong to fire him. We're here to set us straight on this and to share his insights on restoring traditional instruction in American classrooms is Libertas Institute founder Connor Boyack. He's author of the new book in the Tuttle Twins series, America's History. Connor, I want to discuss your new book in a moment, but first, uh, we've seen four religious freedom cases decided by the U.S. Supreme Court this term, all reaffirming a strong commitment to First Amendment rights. So your thoughts on the latest and high school football coach Joe Kennedy. This is strong indication for many people who plugged their nose in some cases and supported President Trump in the hopes to have strong conservative voices on the Supreme Court. Uh, this is a huge vindication for them, seeing what effect that is having, the ripple effect that's going to have for decades and generations to come. It's a welcome ruling for people who are excited about that, uh, but it doesn't necessarily indicate that it's going to be an easy future for those who want to publicly live their faith through you know, public schools in the public square. A lot of these people, rightly or wrongly, are finding alternative avenues to uh, to pursue instead of the traditional ones. Well, let's talk about that on the issue of American public education. Uh, Judicial Watch recently received documents proving uh, that the U.S. Army is teaching critical race theory to cadets at West Point, not just one of several theories, but as an accepted theory, the only one that they're teaching. So that may be a bit surprising to most folks, but you've been following this teaching in our public schools for quite a while now. And with your new book, you're trying to help shift history instruction uh, back to a traditional view. So tell us why you published the latest in the Tuttle Twins series, America's History. Well, this is born of a clear demand from our audience. Uh, we've been publishing books for about eight years in the Tuttle Twins series. We've sold over four million copies, but we had never really delved into history per se, American history specifically. We're really good at making kids memorize the what, but that doesn't really impact their lives 250 years later. How does it suit a 10-year-old to really understand, you know, what type of muskets were used and so forth? It doesn't impact their lives. But when that same child learns the lessons and the ideas and the philosophies and the concepts that were at issue in the revolution, those are the ideas that can be applied to their young lives today. We've been doing, I think, a very poor job at teaching the rising generation the ideas that made America great, the ideas that they can apply to their lives today. And that is what our new book is about, is sure we're teaching you know, what happened and so forth, but the main focus is on why these things happened, the ideas that were at issue that people were studying and feeling about, because we can relate to that in our own lives today. And suddenly young people can learn from history and then apply those lessons in their lives. And from reading your book, I, I found your approach to slavery and race interesting. You didn't ignore it. You took it head on, discussing that Thomas Jefferson owned slaves, yet he wanted to include an anti-slavery mention in the Declaration of Independence. Also, a married couple, a Native American husband and a black wife, uh, acknowledged the bad things in America's past, but also urged your main characters to focus in on the present and the good things about the United States. 
Explain more on that. Yeah, you know, we live in a time of polarization. This isn't a surprise to anyone watching right now. You have people out there tearing down Thomas Jefferson's statue and statues of other founding fathers because how dare they? How could they? They were all white supremacist bigots, they say. And so I felt like we needed to, to, as you point out, hit these things head on and give them fair treatment because they really did happen. But there's nuance. We can't judge the past based on our current understanding, but we also shouldn't ignore it. We should accept it for what it is, recognize the nuance, understand that imperfect people may have wanted different things but couldn't achieve them or try in their lifetime. And history is more complicated than often we let on. And so I felt that that nuance was important. I felt that parents should have these conversations with their kids and be equipped in having those conversations by presenting some of these ideas in our story so that they could talk about them in an age-appropriate way to their kids. Because I think it is healthy to say, these things happen. We can learn from that. What, you know, what can we learn from that for our own lives today about maybe how minorities are treated or about how people are fighting for civil rights or whatever? We can analyze our own world today based on what happened if we're willing to confront those difficult issues and have a conversation about them. And where can people get a copy of your book, Connor? I think it'd be a wonderful addition to the curriculum for homeschoolers, Christian schools. Thank you. Yeah, everything is at our uh, website, tuttletwins.com slash history. I think this is how we, we help the future is by talking about the past. Um, and so we're encouraging everyone, tuttletwins.com slash history. Let's start having those conversations with our kids and make a better future. Okay, Connor Boyack author of the new children's book, America's History. Thanks for setting us straight today, Connor. We appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate it. I've been reporting the news for nearly 50 years, and during that time, I cannot recall seeing a political meltdown like this one. It's the result of back-to-back -back Supreme Court decisions, one concerning the Second Amendment and the right of New Yorkers to carry a gun outside of their homes, and another striking down Roe versus Wade. Yes, the fourth week of June 2022 was a nightmare for the American left. After the abortion ruling, I wondered, why all the vandalism and violent outrage from younger Americans? Then I remembered people under the age of 55 or 60 don't remember a time when abortion was illegal in many U.S. states, when it was not the law of the land. You see, when people have a federal right that they've always had throughout their lives, what type of reaction do you expect? And when public schools teach our kids that expressing feelings is more important than engaging in critical thinking, no wonder they're expressing outrage in the streets and outside the homes of Supreme Court justices. But I want to talk to young people here because you've probably never listened to the other side of this issue. I just ask that you try to set emotions aside and think critically about these points. Pro-abortionists say, my body, my choice and that you have a right to make your own choices about what happens to your body. But I ask, what about the baby's choice? Does he or she get one? When I calmly talk to people about this issue, I ask, when do we medically, scientifically determine that someone has died? The answer I usually receive is, when their heart stops beating. So don't you then believe that life begins when a heart starts beating? For a child in the womb, that usually happens at six or seven weeks. Oh, but you say the baby isn't fully developed until it's birthed at nine months. Okay, but did you know that the muscle mass of most males is not fully developed until they're between the age of 20 and 30? 
And scientific studies show that the brains of both males and females aren't fully developed until the age of 25. If being fully developed is the criterion, then what do we do about them? Humans develop before and after birth. And what about a woman's right to privacy? Hmm, that didn't seem to be an issue for people who supported government vaccine mandates. What about those medical privacy rights? My body, my choice. Do you see the hypocrisy here? And after the science lesson, how about a civics lesson? Here's another one you're unlikely to hear in American public schools. The U.S. Supreme Court correctly struck down Roe v. Wade because the U.S. Constitution does not address abortion. But the Tenth Amendment states, quote, the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively, or to the people. That's exactly what the High Court has done. It's returned the issue to the people of the states to decide. Now, isn't that more democratic? The Supreme Court does not make law. The people do, through their elected legislatures. So what now? Women in nearly half of the states will still be able to get an abortion. Yes, some may be inconvenienced because they'll have to travel to another state if they want to terminate their preborn baby. That will be an added consequence to their choice. My wife always tells me that a woman makes her choice before she gets pregnant. She can abstain, engage in protected or unprotected sexual activity. That's the choice. And think about this. There's a U.S. labor shortage, about 11 million unfilled jobs. What if those 63 million babies aborted since Roe versus Wade had not been aborted, if they'd been allowed to grow up? Many may have filled those unfilled jobs. How many would have become prophets, teachers, doctors, lawyers, presidents? Remember the words of Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Yes, God knows us and has a plan for us. When you come to realize that, you choose life because you know that our lives are in his hands. Well, that's it today from the Global Lane. Be sure to follow us on the CBN News and NRB channels, social media, and our broadcast affiliates. And until next time, be blessed.